are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Would you stand with me uh, as we read today's scripture? Um, Our passage today is Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 10. Um, It is, if you have the Black Bibles in front of you, it's on page 1090. And we'll read through verse 19. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Man, hey everyone. It's been like a month since I've been up here. Got to open the book of Acts with you guys. Uh, And of course, the last two Sundays, our family was in Poland, uh, traveling with Great Fall Break. Uh, Got to visit and encourage some of our missionaries. Uh, I feel like I need a recap of where we've been as much as anyone. And and we were a couple of weeks into kind of a new section, this scattering of the gospel section of the book of Acts that goes, you know, chapter 8 all the way through chapter 12. And I'm tempted to kind of recap everything from chapter 8, but I'll just... Recap where we were last week when Pastor Jeff left us off with walking through the kind of the first half of the conversion story of Saul, or as he's, he's known by his Roman name, his Greek name, Paul. So Saul, Paul, uh, Saul the, the persecutor at this point, and eventually to become Saul the preacher, Paul the, the preacher. You, of course, all remember Saul. He's the guy who's masterminded this whole organized persecution of the early church, That's the the persecution that led to the church being scattered like seeds outside of Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria and beyond. We're seeing the the geographic progression of the gospel across the known world. And, And the great part of the story is everywhere that those people landed and traveled with the message of the gospel, you know, planting those seeds, churches started to grow happens everywhere that followers of Jesus end up landing and living. Now, this guy Saul, his, uh, his vendetta against the Jesus movement continues to expand. Luke kind of shifted our attention for a couple of stories, and now is bringing it back to Saul as his, his vendetta expands into foreign and you know, further away cities where he comes with the authority to, to root out Jesus' followers, drag them back to Jerusalem in order to bring them to trial. Of course, last week, famous story, road to Damascus, Saul unexpectedly comes face to face with Jesus in a blinding vision on the side of the road. We left him last week blinded 
led by the hand into Damascus. He's fasting, he's praying, he's trying to make sense of what he's seen and waiting for God to tell him what to do next. The great part about this story, I think what makes this story so great is that we know, even if this is the first time you've ever read this, we know from the way the story is being told, like we are at a turning point in the narrative. We know that the story Luke is telling us is beginning to shift with Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Uh, the, something's happening. It's, it's a huge turning point for the whole story and for the whole church. Of course, most of the time we don't know that we're at a turning point until it's in the rearview mirror for a couple of years, right? But reading this, we know it's, it's right now. The biggest turning point in my life came about two minutes after I walked out of a preaching class in my junior year at Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary in Ankeny, Iowa. Go Eagles. It was Eagles, right, babe? I never went to a game. Go Eagles. It was a Wednesday morning, I think. I had just preached a 15-minute sermon about Noah in front of about a dozen of my classmates and our instructor, Dr. Bob. And as I was walking out of class, Dr. Bob was sitting there in one of the tables outside the classroom, and he, he asked to chat with me for a minute, which was scary. I didn't think I'd actually done all that bad. I mean, I know it wasn't great, but I didn't think I had bombed that much. And so he stopped me. He goes, Let's see if I can do this. Joey. Dude had the deepest, best preaching voice you ever heard. He sounded like James Earl Jones. It was amazing. He, he would always tell us that when he was younger, um, his voice was like, it was more like mine. It was kind of higher and a little whiny, and he didn't like it. And so he would practice standing in front of the mirror just saying, toast. Like, toast. Toast. Trying to draw his voice out lower. And it worked. It dropped an octave. It was great. A whole generation of fundamentalist Baptist preachers ended up standing in front of mirrors saying, toast, <laughs> hoping we'd sound like Dr. Bob. I don't think it worked for any of us. But anyway, he calls me over. He says, Joey, I want you to preach that sermon tomorrow in chapel. And I was like, Dr. Bob had no idea that with those words, he would change the whole trajectory of my life. And neither did I. And Saul didn't know. When he requested letters authorizing a trip to Damascus to hunt for more followers of Jesus, he didn't know that he was barreling straight for a turning point that the whole trajectory of his life would change in an instant, literally in a flash. His life would change. And in these verses, we're introduced to an otherwise unknown follower of Jesus. A, he comes across as a somewhat timid kind of guy named Ananias. We've never met him before. We're never going to hear from him again. But he also didn't know that his words would be the hinge around which Saul's entire life would pivot. And that's the cool thing about telling people about Jesus, about sharing the message of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the, the Messiah. Every time we speak about Jesus, our words have the potential to be the hinge at the center of which someone else's life may pivot off into a whole new direction. Every time we speak the words of Jesus, we could be at the center of someone else's turning point. 
I mean, would you like to be part of something like that? Right at the center of God grabbing somebody else and pulling their life in his direction? Well, let's watch how it happens as we rejoin this story already in process. We're picking it up in verse 10. Verse 10 has a scene change. You know, we left verse 9 with Saul blinded and fasting in Damascus. Now we shift to that previously unknown follower of Jesus, Ananias. Verse 10, he's just introduced very simply. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And we have no idea how this guy became convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all of Israel's expectations. The way Luke has told the story, remember, he's leaving a lot out in order to tell a very focused theological story, but the way he's told the story, we've not seen the gospel come as far north as Damascus yet. As far as we've been told, the message has only come as far north as Samaria. I mean, Damascus is a further two or three days journey north. But we remember at Pentecost, a couple of years before this, that thousands of Jews from all over the known world were gathered in Jerusalem, heard the preaching of Peter, saw the the, the evidence of the tongues, the different languages, came to believe that Jesus is the Messiah that Israel's been waiting for. And after a period of time, you know, they slowly head back to the places they're from, taking the message with them. Just before this section, too, of course, we saw, you know, Saul kind of went off like a bomb in Jerusalem. Seeds scattered everywhere. Followers of Jesus fleeing in front of his fervor are taking the message of the gospel all over. So however Ananias came to know Jesus as the Messiah, we just, he's there. And we're introduced to him back in verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And Ananias responds, here I am, Lord and the Lord said to him, rise and go to the streets called Straight, and, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying, and he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him that, that he might regain his sight. There's a lot in there. Let, let's put ourselves in Ananias' shoes or his sandals for a moment. I mean, imagine you're part of a religious minority sect, you know, a group that the outside world basically looks on and, and ignores and leaves alone because it's, it, I mean, you're just another part subgroup of like the Jewish way of life. But other Jews, other, there's powerful interest groups within Israel that see you as a heretical movement. Most likely the kind of movement that is going to call down God's judgment in wrath on Israel. So you're not looked on favorably, right? And the way these particular groups read the law requires that people like you be eliminated, violently if necessary. Ananias is part of one of these small groups of followers of Jesus, people who believe that Jesus is the Messiah Israel's been waiting for. Part of one of these small groups huddled together in Damascus. Their numbers swelled, I think, some by people fleeing Jerusalem and the persecution there, people bringing with them stories about a vicious and vehement leader, mastermind of this persecution. This Jewish guy, but he grew up in Tarsus, his name's Saul or Paul, maybe you've heard of him. They thought they'd be safe in Damascus. It's quite a ways away from Jerusalem. But then word comes that this man, Saul of Tarsus, is headed north 
toward Damascus. He's not on vacation. He has authority from the chief priests to, to root out followers of Jesus and drag them back to Jerusalem. Most in the church would flee even further away, but those who couldn't leave or didn't want to leave are huddled in place hoping to escape notice. One of those who stays behind is Ananias. And we don't know a ton about him. We get some clues from what he says here in this conversation with, with Jesus and with Saul later and some of the ways that Saul uh, actually talks about his conversion later in chapter 21. We don't know a, a ton about him, but I get the sense that he's kind of one of these humble guys, gentle guys, not prone to think of himself as the answer to everyone's problems or, or always putting himself out there, you know, hey, if you're in a pinch, come, come find me. Uh, Other passages tell us he's well-spoken of, he's viewed with a lot of respect because of his knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures. He's definitely not a type A personality. He's probably an Enneagram 9 or something like that. Definitely not a 7. We know that. And he has, this is what's fascinating, he has no clue that he's about to become the decisive human figure in the the turning point in Saul's life. He doesn't know that his words are going to be the hinge around which Saul's life will pivot off into a new direction. But what he does know is that he, he knows how to listen for the voice of Jesus. Uh, and the Lord Jesus himself speaks to him in a vision. In the vision, Jesus gives him clear directions. Go to Straight Street, go to Judas's house, look for Saul of Tarsus. He's praying. That's nothing special. Jews pray all the time, especially zealous Jewish men pray all the time. But he's praying and, and God says, Jesus says, I've given him a vision of you coming to him and laying your hands on him and healing him. And now Ananias is looking for the closest witness protection program. Wait, you told him what I look like? I mean, come on, this guy's here to To murder people, Ananias responds in verse 13. I think it comes across kind of like, Lord, I'm not sure if you know, but I've heard a lot about this guy. A lot of people have told me he's done a lot of not good things to people who follow you. Surely some of them have mentioned it to you, right? This guy has authority from the chief priests, like to arrest me and drag me to Jerusalem to withstand trial. I mean, let's think about it for a moment. Ananias knows, we find out in a couple of verses, he knows that Jesus himself has showed up personally to Saul on the road. And if I were Ananias, I'd be wondering, "Um, Jesus, why do you need me to do anything? Like, why take the risk? And if you need someone, wouldn't it make more sense to like, Grab one of those apostles who's always praying for boldness. The ones who are like, they get beat up and they're like, yes, let's do it again. Like those guys, Peter, James, maybe John, surely one of those guys should be the one you would call to come, you know, walk into the lion's den where Saul's just waiting. Why pick, why choose Ananias? We don't know. Neither does Ananias. But the vision he has, the vision in which 
like there's a vision within a vision, the vision where he also knows that Saul's having a vision of him, and it's like in a vision, they're seeing each other. I mean, it shows Jesus is fully in control, fully orchestrating the whole event, and yet for some reason decides it's absolutely necessary to include people in the process. See, in the book of Acts, we never see anyone come to faith in Jesus without some other human agent involved. Even when Jesus shows up in a blinding flash of light at the side of the road to Damascus, he still doesn't seal the deal himself, but gets someone else involved, another person involved, a a person like a lowly and humble and timid and unknown and faithful guy like Ananias, a guy that's about as likely to end up in the annals of history as you or I are. Jesus never brings someone completely and fully and finally to himself without including someone like you or someone like me in that person's story. So in this situation, what's Ananias supposed to do? The instructions are simple. Go find the guy threatening to murder you and all of your friends and miraculously bring him back to full health. Doesn't sound on the face of it like a great idea. But there's a message for this guy as well. It's in verse 15 there. But the Lord says to Ananias, after Ananias is like, hey, respectfully for your consideration, please take into account these facts. And Jesus responds with, okay, um, go. Because he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer, how much he gets to suffer for the sake of my name. And this is the moment in the narrative. This is the moment, I think, when Ananias realizes he is at the center of a turning point. Not his own turning point. We never hear from him again other than when Saul slash Paul mentions him later. We never hear from him again. This is the center of Saul's turning points. Because in these verses, one brand new idea, it's never shown up before, it finally shows up for the first time. Saul is Jesus' chosen instrument. It's a phrase used in verse 15. Chosen instrument to carry Jesus' name before Gentiles and kings, children of Israel. Chosen instrument to the Gentiles. The Gentiles have shown up before in this theological history of the early church, the, the book of Acts, but they've only shown up in connection with like, hey, do you remember how the, the Jews killed Jesus and they got Gentiles involved, like they conspired to do it together, to put Jesus to death? It's the only other time to this point that Gentiles have been, have been mentioned and Jewish readers, I think even the, the apostles themselves in these first kind of nine chapters are, are reading or hearing what Jesus is saying. Hey, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, and reading it largely with a Jewish understanding. Preach the good news that Israel's Messiah has come and preach it to the Jews in Jerusalem. Then preach it to the Jews in Judea. And then preach it to the Jews in Samaria and preach it to the Jews around the ends of the earth. Because God said at the end of days, he's going to bring everyone from the end of the earth, all the Jewish people from the ends of the earth back 
together again. This is how that happens. But here, for the first time, explicitly we're told, no, the good news of the kingdom of God is intended to go beyond just the Jewish people. With that you know, in mind, of course, we can read backwards these first nine chapters and be like, oh yeah, of course it makes sense. Jerusalem, Judea, ends of the earth. Of course that includes Gentiles. But there was really no of course about it until this point. Because Jesus' plan is for the good news of the kingdom to expand beyond just the children of Israel, but to Gentiles as well. See, Saul is going to be Jesus' chosen instrument to carry his name before Jews, children of Israel. And sure, that makes sense. Saul's trained as a rabbi, right? He knows the Hebrew scriptures inside and out. But also, I mean, Saul is Jesus' chosen instrument to carry his name before kings, Guess who doesn't have a king? Israel, already there's a hint, right? This is going beyond. He's going to have to make a case for Jesus to those outside of Israel, those in authority. But even more than that, it says, clearly, Saul is Jesus' chosen instrument to take his name to Gentiles. Jesus himself is telling Saul, hey, this message, the good news that Jesus of Nazareth is Israel's Messiah and the Lord of the world, this message is not just for the Jewish people. It is for everyone. And exactly how all of that works out and what happens when you're trying to bring people with different ethnic and cultural backgrounds, different races together within this new community around Jesus, like how that whole story works out, well, Saul gets to live all that out over the next 30 years or so. Because he's the chosen instrument. Now, just like we asked with Ananias, we may be wondering, like, why Ananias? We can ask the same question about Saul. Like, why Saul? Why this guy? We don't know, but we can come up with some ideas, and I love what one author has written. It says, the, the person to do this task, to spearhead the work of getting the message out to those outside the law... Uh, the person to do this task must be the one who most clearly of all others of his generation had been the most keen to stamp the message out. Nobody must ever be able to say that people took the message to the Gentiles because they weren't bothered about Israel and its traditions or they didn't understand you know, the, the importance of the law. No, when you want to reach the pagan world, the person to do it will be a hardline, fanatical, ultra-nationalist, super-orthodox, Pharisaic Jew. And they say God doesn't have a sense of humor. Well, Ananias responds to Jesus' command, hey, go to Straight Street, look for Judas' house, find this guy, Saul of Tarsus, you've heard of him. He's my chosen instrument. Uh, Ananias responds to, to Jesus' command, his, his gracious explanation, and just does it. So he gets up, he goes to Straight Street, he finds Judas' house, he asks for uh, Saul of Tarsus, he finds him praying, waiting for God to reveal to him, like, well, okay, what's next? What do you do next? And Ananias approaches him and lays hands on him. Verse 17, he says to him, Brother Saul... And brother is significant, like already he sees Saul as part of this new family that is formed around allegiance to the story of Jesus, the Messiah. Family, by the way, 
back then meant something so much more than it does now. It comes with the weight of obligations and mutual care for one another. It says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And with Ananias laying on his hands and Saul's blindness lifted, Luke tells us something like scales fell from his eyes. We have no idea if that's metaphorical or if it's literal. It's like, I don't know, the eye gunk that you get in the morning or something like that all came off. But with the filling of the Holy Spirit, with Saul's baptism, Saul is now converted, called, commissioned as Jesus' chosen instrument to take the good news of the kingdom of God, the, the news that, that God's space where God dwells, heaven, and, and our space where mankind dwells, earth, have come together in the person of Jesus and in those who are followers of Jesus and in the new communities that those followers of Jesus are forming around Jesus. That we call them churches. That has implications for the whole world. It's a message for everyone, Jews, kings, and Gentiles. So if you want to find out what happens next, you have to come back next week. Or read ahead on your own, because, you know, you've, you've got your own copy. So, you know, when we look at a passage like this, looking at we are as, I mean, this document is like the origin story of our church. It's how we got here. Now, there's a long gap between the end of this, this book and the beginning of ours, but this is what a church is. This is how they, they started. So every, every time we're looking at one of these passages, we're going, okay, what does this have to do with us? How do we be a church like the church? And we took Saul's conversion story, and we kind of broke it into two sections because there's this narrative-focused shift between verses 1 through 10 or 1 through 9 and verses 10 through 19. You noticed, I'm sure, that 1 through 9 is really all about Saul and what he experienced, and then it shifts to Ananias. And it doesn't even really tell us much about Saul except for how Ananias interacts with him. That's interesting to me because, like we've said multiple times, we never hear from Ananias again. And Saul's the one who becomes the main person that the rest of Acts follows. But I think Luke tells us about Ananias, about this ordinary, faithful, humble follower of Jesus, because that's who he uses. Ordinary people who are open to hearing Jesus' voice, ready to explain the, the good news that Jesus is king. That's who he uses when he wants to completely transform someone else's life. I'm going to read a story like this, and I can't help but ask, my, ask myself, am I open to the voice of Jesus? The voice of the Holy Spirit when the gospel is sending me to someone, when, when I hear, feel, go talk to that person, tell them about me. A couple days ago, as I'm just mowing leaves in the lawn and my neighbor starts chatting and I'm like, I have like 30 minutes and I need all this done. And, and in the back of my mind, it's not a voice, it's just an impression. And it basically said, dude, your neighbor is a Jewish atheist. He needs to hear about me. This is why you live here. Are we open 
to the voice of Jesus, to the Holy Spirit prompting us, this is why you're here. This is who the gospel is sending you to. And of course, the question that immediately follows after that one, the, the am I open to the voice is the, okay, if I get sent, do I know what to say? Do I know what to do? Do I know how to talk to somebody about Jesus? We've been talking about this evangelism training thing that some of our leaders did over the last year. It's a slide up again to remind you of this. Um, it's the thing we did all last year, a number of us that we're bringing then to, to you all. Right? I'm a pastor. I've been trained to study the Bible, trained to teach the Bible, even trained to lead a church. I never got training on how to tell somebody about Jesus one-on-one. Seems like a gap in the curriculum, but whatever. I guess we're all just assumed we all just know how to do that. And we figure it out on our own as we go along. Anyone else in that same boat? Just figuring it out? That's why we're doing these life-to-life groups. It's an opportunity for you and a couple other people who are also like, I don't know what I'm doing and I'm just trying to figure it out to get together and figure it out together with a little bit of training and guidance. It's not a ton of work. Somebody after first hour asked me, they're like, how much do I have to memorize? It's like, actually, there's very little memorization. Those of you who went through it last year know. It's very little memorization. It's not evangelism explosion with the like, decision trees that you have to work your way down. It's, if you met every week, it would be over in about four months. Um, but it's basically doing everything you already normally do with and open eyes, open hearts, so you can open your mouth to talk to people about Jesus. That's really all there is to it. And if you're you know, kind of like me, where you're like, okay, I want to talk to people about Jesus. I don't feel prepared. I don't know what I'm doing. This will help change that. Uh, we'll have signups open for about another week or so, so prayerfully consider if you want to be part of something like this. Um, I guarantee it will change your life if you engage with it. It's changed mine and the way I see people around me, even though I kind of do this thing professionally. It will change yours, and it may put you at the center of someone else's turning point. You might be, your words might become the hinge around which someone else's life pivots in a whole new direction. One of the participants in last year's training told me this week about an ongoing conversation she's been having with a family that lives nearby. Uh, she said she invited the family uh, to our like, mini golf putt-putt open that we do in January. That's just an opportunity to, like, when it's cold and wet out there, you can come inside where it's warm and dry and have fun as a family and invite others into it as well. So she invited this family along, getting to know them, a little more relaxed type environment. She said now every time that she, she chats with them, the kids ask when they can go back to that golf church. <laughs> and the husband's always like, man, it's so cool that like, Pastor Nathan and his team did all the work to give our family this opportunity to have like, a fun experience together. Uh, but his wife comments, you know, when we go to the Hindu temple, we're just in and out. Uh, we don't know anyone, nobody knows us. I said, but I was watching you as you were walking around your church, and you're known. Like, people know you. I don't have a community like that, but I wish I did. I mean, that's why we do it, right? That's why we do that event and other things like it. Now, no one in that family has come to faith in Jesus yet, but the conversations are continuing, and they're on their way. And the person who told me that story who gets to have those conversations is chomping at the bit to lead a group of us so that we can do that same kind of thing and have those same kind of stories and those same kind of conversations. So the website's up there. If you're interested in learning more um, and and going through it, uh, you can sign up there. 
Now, like I said at the, uh, the beginning of the sermon, um, Dr. Bob didn't know, and neither did I, uh, that his, his words, you know, Joey, I can't even do a good impersonation, Joey, I want you to preach in chapel tomorrow. He didn't know that they would completely change the direction of my life. I had no idea I was at a turning point, uh, because in the audience that day was this cute girl that I'd known for a year or two, and she'd just broken up with her boyfriend my best friend's roommate. And she saw me up on the stage. I mean, we knew each other a little bit, but she saw me up on stage. I was like preaching and being all holy and everything. And for the first time, she says, for the first time she thought, huh, he's really nice and funny. I think with a little bit of work, he could be attractive. (laughs) Our story isn't so much a meet cute as it is a meet he could be cute, I think. See, if it weren't for that, that sermon, it's probably the worst sermon I've ever preached. I burned the manuscripts. I don't know that my wife would have ever noticed me. We would never have dated and married, had our daughter Anna, moved here, become part of this family. I would probably still be an immature and arrogant fundamentalist with bad hair and old clothes. And Jenna, if Jenna had never noticed me and married me, she probably would have been just fine. I think she would have done pretty well for herself. Right, But those words, hey, I want you to preach this in chapel tomorrow, became the hinge around which our lives pivoted off in a whole new direction. Your words, your words about Jesus, your words to someone else as you've gotten to know them over the course of years and you can say to them, like, I, I see the things you're longing for and I'm telling you, it, what you long for only makes sense in Jesus. God loves you enough that his son died in your place so that you could be brought into new life with him and join him in his endeavor to bring God's space and human space back together so we live with him as we were designed to from the very beginning. Your words about Jesus might be the hinge around which someone else's life entirely pivots in a whole new direction. If you're called to be there, are you ready to speak? Let's pray. Father, we don't know why you choose to use us. We don't know why Jesus doesn't call people to himself apart from us, apart from someone joining that person into life with you and into the community life of the church. But Father, you have called us and commissioned us to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus and the message of the kingdom. Father, help us to walk worthy of the calling you've given us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.